Uh, I finished the last lecture, whatever lecture number that was. I'll leave that to the numbering experts. Uh, in uh, Jeter's book, and uh, dealt with some of the preliminary things, general subjects I wanted to deal with, uh, and before diving into the actual Baptist distinctives themselves, I intended to cover one more this morning, but not from that book. I do want to encourage, I didn't want to take the time here because I didn't think it was within the mainstream of my purposes, but in that book, Jeter's book, uh, I want to encourage you to read those last two lectures. One begins on page 286. The other begins on page 306, 306. I strongly recommend that you do read those two lectures. <clears throat> uh, I'm not covering them myself, but they are of immense value. Uh, so then we will now finally set ourselves to the task of closely examining our Baptist distinctives. Uh, however, again, as I say, today I wanted to, to uh, uh, take up just one other subject pertinent to this series that is not specifically a Baptist distinctive. Thomas Hooker, a prominent English colonist of the Puritan tradition, he was actually a Congregationalist, uh, Congregational minister, and a leader in Massachusetts. Uh, he lived from 1586 to 1647. Thomas Hooker made a very wise uh, defense of distinctives. Now, just to put in perspective why these comments are so important, in my opinion, we, we are living in what must surely be, in all of history, one of the greatest atmospheres for amalgamation. Uh, there is no uh, nothing that stands out economically, uh, culturally as to style, uh, tradition, or religion. Anything that stands out stands condemned. Uh, we are in a a day, a generation, almost worldwide, where there wants to be a blending, melting pot. This whole matter of having distinctives is repulsive to the modern mind. And so I wanted to say just a word, quoting Thomas Hooker. Thomas Hooker said, and this is, I'm plucking this out of its context, but you'll see 
the application. He said the mixture, mixture of those things by speech, which by nature are divided, is the mother of all error. To take away, therefore, that error which confusion breedeth, distinction is requisite. Distinction. He's making a case for distinctiveness. He says all this blending, this mixture is the word he used, uh, is the mother of errors. And what's needed is distinction, distinctives. And so before we begin the again, before we begin the detailed study of our Baptist distinctives, you understand that we are talking about uh we must take one final slight detour and remind ourselves about another doctrine which is foundational to this whole study, and that is the doctrine of church. I mean, when we say we're going to study our Baptist distinctives, we're talking about Baptist distinctives regarding church, our church life. It is, after all, the distinctives of the Baptist church which our study proposes to take in hand. And so to that point, I want to use two different things to set before you our doctrine of the church. Uh, obviously this is not intended to be exhaustive, but it is intended to be directive because we are studying Baptist distinctives. So it's important that we nail down, just in some preliminary way, the doctrine of the church. I take for my first use, I said I would use two things to set that doctrine before you. I take for the first our own Baptist confession of faith, which if you're like me, you carry it with you in your Bible. I always have it. And I would point you just to two or three paragraphs in that, in that section on the church, which is chapter 26. Paragraph chapter 2 says this, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any error, everting the foundation, uh, or unholiness, unholiness of conversation. All of those are and may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. Now we'll take up the doctrine that's being taught there later in our Baptist distinctives. Paragraph 4, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. It is invested, says our confession, in a supreme and solemn manner in the Lord Jesus Christ and he alone has the power for calling, instituting, ordering, and governing his church. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that's called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paragraph 6. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So there must be in a biblical functioning church a submission to one another. There must be a willing consent to walk together. And that walking together includes these Baptist distinctives. We can't have a diversity of opinion on these things and fulfill the requirements laid out in our Baptist confession. Paragraph 7, to each of these churches thus gathered according to his mind declared in his word. He hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. So each of these churches are to be governed and their power and authority comes from his word. Paragraph 12, as all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches. I told you I visited not long ago the largest church, and I put that in quotes, in Coweta County. And was shocked to learn that they do not have membership. You do not join it. There is no official membership, period. They have completely done away with that. And you just come or you don't come or whatever. There is no such thing as membership. But our confession says all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity to, so to do, 
So all that are admitted unto the privileges of a church are under the censures and government thereof, according to the rule of Christ. Paragraph 14, in each church and all the members as, as each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it. Everyone within the bounds of their places and callings to the exercise of their gifts and graces. So the churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. So there should be a cooperation, if I can use that word, among churches individually, individually constituted. Churches individually constituted. One of the reasons, and I just only kind of this, not an epiphany, but it occurred to me recently, that one of the reasons we struggle here to find uh, churches with whom we may share that kind of communion is because according to that paragraph, and according to our convictions, churches ought to be of like mind. They ought to be agreed in doctrine and as much as possible in practice. That's not possible when those individual churches allow within their own membership diversity of opinion. <laughs> if you can't get unanimity in their own congregation, then it makes it difficult for another congregation to have close communion with them. Uh, if I can put it in kind of colloquialistic language, when their own membership is all over the map, doctrinally and practically, it's very difficult for us to know that we're fellowshipping with like-minded people. Whatever the pastor may say, the church is, holds no distinctives. So, we use the words of our confession for something of a definition. Then, we will use also the words of William Crowell, the other book that I strongly recommended that you have for purposes of this study together. We take on his words, his book, The Church Members Manual. Page 32, he says the English word church was probably derived from a Greek word which signifies belonging to the Lord, and he has footnotes that you can read later about that. It is not used in the English version of the Old Testament, but often in the New, 
as a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, the primary meaning of which is an assembly or a congregation called together for one particular purpose. This word occurs three times in Acts 19 where it is used to designate the, the uh, tumultuous gathering in Ephesus and is translated assembly. Uh, in Acts 7.38 it's translated by the word church where it clearly refers to the whole body of the Israelites. This is he that was with the church, that is Ecclesia, in the wilderness. But with these exceptions and a very few others, Ecclesia is uniformly translated in the New Testament by the word church. The prevailing use of the word is to denote a company of Christians. And then on page 37, he says that the primary meaning of ecclesia, church, a select assembly or congregation being in its nature limited to a local company is in the New Testament the invariable and distinguishing term applied to a company of believers in Christ. Should one church extend its authority over other churches or congregations of Christians so as to control their actions, it could never make them a part of itself nor fuse them into one church. Now that's another. We've got churches, and again I put that in quotes, that have seven, eight large congregations physically and geographically separated. Says our author, that cannot be. <laughs> Those are separate congregations. And see, I'm just trying to fine-tune our doctrine of church. To apply the name church to an extensive hierarchy or to national religious establishment as the Church of Rome or the Church of England or the Episcopal Church or the Methodist Episcopal Church is an unscriptural and improper use of the word. He's simply making the point that the New Testament use of this word only and ever envisions a local assembly, a covenanted body. Now it was used, and he showed, he gave you the instances. There are exceptions where, for example, it referred to all of Israel in the Old Testament, which really was. <laughs> a specific and singular congregation of people. But it is used in the theological and proper sense that way, as a single covenanted local body. He has a footnote that's worthy on page 36. He says, this inquiry, it will be seen, is a fundamental and most important, that is this inquiry about the doctrine of the church. What is it? 
The true issue between the advocates of spiritual Christianity and religious freedom on the one hand, and the papists and uh, prelatists on the other, arises here. Ecclesiastical history bears unequivocal testimony to the fact that the idea of a Catholic or universal church as to ecclesiastical organization first corrupted Christianity by destroying the supremacy of the word of God, crushing the right of private judgment, breaking down the independence of churches and the equality of ministers, exalting bishops, patriarchs, cardinals, and finally popes to lord it over God's heritage. Dr. Merrill Aubigny of Geneva, author of the excellent History of the Reformation, in his late work entitled, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that properly, so I won't. But anyway, it is a work by Aubigny. He says this, and I'm quoting Aubigny. To the epoch of the Reformation, if I may so speak, three distinct eras, three distinct eras have occurred in the history of the church. Now this is a general summar, summarization, but you history buffs will appreciate it, I'm sure. He says in the epoch, at the epoch of the Reformation, at that point, there were three distinct eras in church history according to Aubigny. Number one, there was that of evangelical Christianity, which having its focus in the times of the apostles, extended its rays throughout the first and second century of the church. The second era, according to Aubigny, is that he calls the ecclesiastical Catholicism, which commencing its existence in the 3rd century, reigned until the 7th. And then thirdly, there's the era of papacy, which reigned from the 7th to the 15th century. Now that's how Aubigny saw church history from the time of the apostles to the Reformation. Such were the three grand eras in the, then in the then past history of the church. Let us see what characterized each of them. Now this is good. In that first period, the one he calls just evangelical Christianity, the supreme authority was attributed to the will of God. The word of God, sorry, the word of God. The supreme authority that reigned among churches then was the word of God. In that second era, which he calls ecclesiastical Catholicism, it was, according to some, that is, authority was ascribed to the church as represented by its bishops. And in that third era, authority was ascribed to the Pope. We acknowledge cheerfully 
that the second of these systems is much superior to the third, but inferior to the first. In fact, in the first of these systems, it is God who rules. In the second, it is man who rules. And in the third, it is, to speak after the apostle, that working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 the system of the third period is popery. The system of the second is episcopacy. And the system of the first is evangelical Christianity, which is explained and advocated in these pages. So, what we are seeking to make a case for is that for our doctrine of the church, we go back to that first era, to the methods used by that evangelical Christianity. And that method was, of course, the Word of God. We would define the church by the Word of God. We will I will give you it's worthy of reading as the beginning of our studies. Well, let me conclude. He says the conclusion is irresistible that there were many churches constituted under the ministry of the apostles, each one entitled in the fullest sense to the name, the immunities, and the authority of the church of the living God. That each and every one of those congregations was in the fullest sense of the biblical word, a church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that somewhat just foundational, broad and general definition of our church, and since we are about to set about the studying the distinctives of the church, I felt that that groundwork was needful. We will not get far, but I will just introduce you to our first actual Baptist distinctive. We will take up the Baptist distinctives. The first, and that which must be first, in my opinion, is, and I want it, I worded it carefully, and comparing with all the resources that I'm using, the first Baptist distinctive is this. We hold to the absolute, solitary, and impregnable authority 
of the Holy Scripture contained in the 66 books of the Bible. As a Baptist distinctive, we, unlike any other, hold to, that is, as a denominational label, hold to the absolute, solitary, and impregnable authority of the Holy Scripture. And I define that as that contained in the 66 books of the Bible. Not the Apocrypha, not the writings of popes, not the writings of any man, no other source, no revelation in the heavens, no signs, no visions, no nothing, our absolute soul and impregnable and absolute authority is in the scriptures. That must surely be a Baptist distinctive. I give you Crowell's comments. When a society of any kind is formed, I'm on page 26, it necessarily comes to possess certain powers which its members as individuals did not possess. The powers of a church and the principles on which they are exercised are very different from those of civil government or of a common voluntary society. Because the source, nature, and extent of those powers and the manner in which they should be exercised must next be inquired into. A church too, like every associated body, must be organized and have officers or public servants appointed to the discharge of certain duties. The principles of its organization, therefore, form the last topic of inquiry into the constitution of a church. Within this threefold division, all that relates to the structure of churches must be contemplated. Now, but by what means are those principles on which the existence, the powers, the organization of churches depend to be ascertained? What is it that we are going to have that will be the source, our go-to place for every aspect of these of an organized church. It is evident they cannot be discovered from the light of nature itself, for Christianity is a revealed religion. Its doctrines, duties, and ordinances are matters of record. This record claims to be divinely inspired infallible and perfect and the purpose for which it was given to men by inspiration of God is that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works the simple question now before us is this do they reveal to us all the principles which are essential to the constitution of a church do they? Are the scriptures alone sufficient for this purpose or do they need the addition of some other writings or all traditions or human legislative wisdom? This question must be 
first to be settled. We proceed then to state as a first principle which all Baptists hold and maintain that the scriptures furnish the only rules and laws for the formation, order, and government of Christian churches. That's it. You could not state it more simply, more purely. Then he makes this statement. We unanimously appeal to the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Now when you settle that, when you settle that matter, you are standing firmly on Baptist ground. Whoever, he says in another place, whoever therefore presumes to maintain that the inspired volume does not contain all needful instructions for the formation and government of churches must remember that he is assaulting the integrity and destroying the authority of that divine word which opens the only way to the salvation of the human soul. So to deny the scripture's absolute and sole authority for the government of church is to not to deny the same word of God that is the only means of man's salvation. Serious business, huh? Serious business. So, I give you just that introduction today to this first Baptist distinctive. The absolute solitary and the impregnable authority of the Holy Scriptures contained in the 66 books of the Bible, that is a Baptist distinctive and very foundational to everything else. We cannot look anywhere else for light. If we do, we've shifted from biblical ground. And we certainly can no longer be called Baptist. The first Baptist distinctive. Questions, comments, further light. On this subject, it is important, I think, to note that of that confession from which you quoted two moments ago, that is the 1689 one confession of faith, it is the only confession of the free faith confession of that era, Westminster, Savoy, and London. Second one that begins with these 
words. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And for all the carping that our friends who hold the Westminster and the Savoy do concerning our much use of similar language throughout our confession to those who there. It is in this point, at the very beginning, mm -hmm. the principal point where we diverge with them mm -hmm. on matters of greatest importance. That is, the primacy, the sufficiency, and the certainty of the Scripture. Amen. So, for all of our all of our friends who would make uh, attempts to denigrate our use of their terminology in so much with the other places and to show our general agreement as our forefathers wrote with them. This is the distinctive that it begins with this statement that theirs do not because ultimately they cannot. They cannot, exactly. Because as soon as they make allusion to sola scriptura, mm -hmm. they're forced to then bring in tradition and fathers to support one or another of their church principles. So, so it's important that we remember in dealing even with the confessions that this is the first and greatest distinctive and is laid out mm -hmm. in the first sentence of the first chapter of the opening of our confession. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that is the point of our the point of our departure. Our diverge, diverging from them is at the very first point, the very first sentence. It cannot be overemphasized, it cannot be overstressed. The singularity, solitarity, and impregnable authority of the scriptures. Standing alone plus nothing. And we find that, of course, it's easy for us to point at the Church of Rome because, of course, their departure from that doctrine is so egregious and so conspicuous. But it, it, it has its existence in much more subtle forms among, among some who call themselves Baptists. I mentioned we started the service this morning. I made the mention. I was talking about having this Bible, this Bible, the Scripture, the translation. And I'm not saying it's the only one in the world. Certainly not. But I'm saying this King James Bible, uh, having that, multitudes will go to religious events today with a book 
and it is no more the word of God. They have no more the word of God than some folk who have never had a line of it translated into their language. They are as void of the word of God as a complete heathen who's never had a word of it in his own language. They're just as void of it. Notwithstanding that they're carrying around a book, they have not the word of God. And the primacy of that cannot be overstated. The importance and the primacy of having the word of God. Of course, the Geneva in the English language, the Geneva preceded this King James. But much that has come along since has progressively denigrated the translation. And I think that the only firm ground you can stand on is this King James Bible in terms of time, at the point of time. This is the latest great translation and uh, reliable. And it's so important that we have that. We not only have a doctrine of inspiration, we have a doctrine of preservation. And that's in our Baptist Confession of Faith as well. <clears throat> so the primacy of the Scriptures. That is surely a definite Baptist distinctive. And we stand on it, whether it's against Papis or whether it's against existentialist Baptist who want to substitute their experience for the word of God and say oh God told me <laughs> indeed well God told me what's in this book and that's that that is the final word